0: And I also just want to say again, if you can be here tonight for our Christmas Eve service, that's a f- special time for us as a church family to gather. Um, so if you can come and just celebrate with us the, the truth that God became a man. Even before sin entered the world, I don't know if you think about this, but even before sin entered the world in Genesis 2 and 3, God had a, res- a rescue plan in mind. God had a rescue plan in mind even before the fall. And that plan would be that God Himself would come and be born from a human womb and uh, bring forth a Savior, a Redeemer for the world. He is, as we're learning in John chapter 6, He is the bread that came down from heaven. He is the bread That came down from heaven. So if you'll turn your Bibles to John 6, we're going to continue there because it's an appropriate passage for this time of year, especially as we think about the incarnation. Jesus calls himself the bread that came down from heaven. Seven times in this discourse, which is a sermon given by Jesus in a synagogue, in a place called Capernaum in Galilee, Jesus uh, over and over again calls himself the bread, the true bread that came down from heaven. Look at verse uh, 32 of John chapter 6. <clears throat> it is not, in the middle of the verse, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but my Father has given you the true bread out of heaven. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. You hear all the Christmas language here? Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven. What it, what it means by this is I'm the preexistent God, the self-existent God. The Word become flesh. The word that was there from the beginning and the word that was God. You see in verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 42, I have come, at the end of the verse, I have come down out of heaven. As they are repeating what Jesus has just said. Verse 46 says it a little differently. The one who is from God. Verse 50, the bread which comes down out of heaven. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. We live in an affluent culture, we don't think much about bread. Um, like these people thought about bread, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the true bread, uh, they think of bread, and in, in, in a physical sense, they think of it as something that sustains them, uh, it's their sustenance, their daily bread, that's just food, um, just a basic nutrition that they need every single day uh, that satisfies their physical hunger, um, And Jesus, using this language, is speaking of it, of course, in a trying to get their attention off the temporal side of it, the physical side of it, and think about it in a spiritual sense. I'm what you need spiritually. I'm what you need to sustain you spiritually and to feed you spiritually. I'm the only thing that can satisfy you. A lot of things make promises that they can satisfy you, but I'm the only one. Jesus is saying that can satisfy that longing and hungering and and desire for purpose and meaning in life. I'm the only one that can do that. I am the true bread out of heaven. I came down to do that. In John 6, I told you this is a sermon that Jesus preached It's uh, after he's, he sets the scene with a couple miracles in there, the big one being the, the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 20,000, um, and then he starts into this sermon. But that, those miracles sort of set the context, especially the feeding of the 5,000 with bread. Uh, now you have Jesus saying, I am the bread, I am the bread of life. And what's interesting about this sermon is he starts out with 20,000 people following him. By the time we get to verse 71 at the end of the sermon, he will have 12 people following him. And one of them is of the devil. Uh, Imagine that in the eyes of the world in terms of being a successful preacher, Uh, what if I was applying for a job, you know, at a church, and I said, yeah, the last church we started with 20,000, we left, I had 12. I mean, you would just be going, in the world's eyes, that's just not success. It's just not success. But Jesus, it's interesting, in this sermon, he seems to say harder and harder things throughout it to almost like... Driving the superficial away. That's what he was doing. He was driving away all the people that were there just for free food. And miracles and signs. And wonders. He he wanted the serious there. Those who truly wanted the bread. The truly desired to satisfy the spiritual hunger of their heart, not just the physical hunger of their heart. So Jesus, in the eyes of the world, would not be a very successful preacher because he was not going to accommodate their fleshly desires and I'll tell you what gets a church in trouble when they try to do that, when they try to be seeker sensitive, where they try to say, well, what do you want? Oh, you, don't, you want? You want coffee? We'll have coffee. You want food? We'll have food. You want a fog machine? We'll have a fog machine. You don't want, you don't want sermons from the Bible. We can, we can sort of get that out or cut that back. You see, that's the danger. And that's the danger of the secret sense. Of, that's the danger of our culture and our definition of success in, in the ministry is the crowds. And Jesus had no problem speaking to what their real need was regardless if they wanted to hear it or not. And as a result, the superficial dwindle off. We have to tread with caution into this sermon. Keep in mind, we are analyzing a sermon here. This is Jesus' sermon. These are his words. So just think of that as we go through this. These are his words. There are some difficult, as we saw last week, there's some different, difficult doctrinal, controversial statements in this sermon. Understand that. Not all doctrine and theology is inviting and comfortable. Understand that when you read the Bible. You read a lot of things in the Bible that are simply not comfortable. We're specifically talking about the doctrine of election here as we introduced last week. But just think about the Bible in general. There are so many things that just are hard to swallow sometimes. We have things like, for some people, honoring your father and your mother is a hard thing to swallow because of their life experience. For for some women, a very difficult thing, wives submit to your husbands. For men, husbands love your wives is a tough one. The way Christ loves the church, that's tough. Looking at a woman lustfully from your heart is the same as committing adultery, the Bible says. Homosexuality is unnatural, Romans 1 says and sinful and loving your enemies come on there's a lot of difficult doctrines and hard things to swallow in the scriptures we must approach the bible and what the word says with humility we must you know these doctrines can divide churches you know that this doctrine this morning can divide has divided many churches but the point is, we must all have humility, preserve the unity of the body. We must have humility and, re, and, and understand that God's thoughts are way above our thoughts. His ways are way above our ways. His thinking is way above our thinking. He's infinite. He's all-knowing he understands the truths, then we, can't, we, can't, we cannot get to the bottom of God, Romans 8 says. We can't get to the end of God and his thinking. We can't comprehend him and all of his thinking. All we have is what he puts in front of us and wants us to know. And we accept that with humility. So we are coming into a difficult section this morning. We are coming into a uh, hard thing this morning. And you say, well, Rod, it's Christmas. Why not just Joseph and Mary and a baby in a manger? Let's just talk about that. Well, I just want to tell you something. We're talking about that baby that was in a manger. Only it's 32 years later, he's given this sermon. And he's talking about the very same thing that happened to him in that manger. He was bred that came down from heaven. The true bread. A lot of people like Jesus' works. As I told you last week, the crowds loved the works of Jesus. They loved the things he did, and they gathered to see him do more. But they did not like his words. His words were offensive. And many, as we will see later in this chapter, many walked with him no more. The setting, look in verse 26, the crowd has found him, they find him in Capernaum after the feeding of the 5,000, after the miracles, they find him that next day. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You did not learn anything from what you saw, you did not see in those In the miracle that was done there, you did not see uh, me as God. You did not see me as one to be worshipped. You just want more food. You're just wanting to exploit power. You just want to make me a king, as we see in this passage as well. In verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Father God has set his seal. You're spending all this energy seeking for the temporal, for the trivial. Seek for what is eternal. And then we come to verse 41 this morning. And then we left off here last week. Let me just give you the context of verse 41. Look at verse 35. He said back in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 37, all of the Father, excuse me, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. I'm the bread of life, I came down from heaven, and whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That's where we left off last time. That's the context of verse 41. Notice in verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. I'm not of this earth. I'm not from this world. They say, wait a second. We know your family. We know your family. You're from this region. We know your family. Nazareth is not very far away. You're from Galilee. We've seen your family. We know about, notice verse 42, we know about Joseph, your father, your mother, doesn't mention your name, but Mary. How does this man say, I have come down from heaven? You see in verse 42. They're not aware of the virgin birth. We read from Luke chapter one earlier. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of Joseph. Did he say that? No, he will be called the son of God. The son of God. Joseph was legal father but not biological father. Isaiah 9.6, a child will be, notice, born to us, humanity, a son will be given, that's deity. We're talking about God, man. We're talking about 100% God or 100% man. And he will be called what? Mighty God, eternal father. Names of deity. So that was a miracle they were obviously not aware of, thinking Joseph was his father, not aware of that he was the God-man. It's believed by many that Joseph, many commentaries will tell you, it's believed that by this time in the ministry and life of Christ, Joseph has already passed the scene. He, He was alive when Jesus was a teenager. We saw when he was 12, but he has more than likely, pass from the scene because he's never mentioned again. Mary is, he is not. But they seize on the statement that I am bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Instead of trying to understand who I am, you're grumbling, seeking to discredit me. You're basically reliving what you're your ancestors did in the wilderness when the manna came down from heaven. When that bread came down from heaven, you grumbled them too. Now this bread, me, my, I, the bread, the true bread, am coming down from heaven and you're grumbling again. You're reliving it all over again with your grumbling. And then, folks, he gets this statement interjected in there. Verse 44. No one can Underline the word can. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So if he hasn't already offended everybody from the last week's sermon where he was talking about his sovereignty in salvation, the sovereignty of God in salvation, he certainly is about to for sure, with this statement. Go back up to verse 37. Recall this from last time. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Just joining these two verses together, I'm saying here, it's saying here that those who are given to me are those whom the Father draws. And the one who comes, excuse me, And in verse 37, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Notice the Father gives to the Son. The Father gives those whom he chooses to the Son. He's telling these people, you don't believe because you have not been given to me. You don't believe because you have not been drawn by the Father. That's basically what he is saying to these people when he makes these kinds of statements. Those who come to me are given to me by the Father. I've used the terminology, you and I as believers are a love gift To the Son from the Father. Verse 44 is the clearest statement on the sinner's inability to save himself. You can't, see the word can again? You can't, no one can. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him. You cannot do it. It's It's not that the sinner will not, it's that the sinner cannot. Cannot unless the, father, unless the Father does something first. The word draw is the same word used in John 22, 21, 6, where it talks about dragging a net. Acts 21, dragging somebody from the temple. James 2, 6, dragging someone to court. C.S. Lewis called himself a reluctant convert. He said it like this God drug him into the kingdom of God. I was looking for a way out, but then I joyously was converted. See, the reason he has to do this is because no one would come. No one would come. Folks, there is nothing attractive There is nothing attractive to the human heart about the gospel. Understand that. It's an offensive message. It calls you a sinner. It tells you you're going to die and go to hell. It tells you that you have offended a holy God. It tells you that you're unable to save yourself. It does everything to attack human pride. It's an offensive message. God must do something to make that message attractive to the human heart. There's no other way. Romans 3 says, none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. You can read that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one really wants to find God. Yes, you say people are seeking. Yes, you know what? They're, they're seeking, but they're not seeking the God and the Jesus of the Bible. Romans 8, 7 says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, the natural mind is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, excuse me, the natural mind hates the law of God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, it is not even able to do so. Romans 5 says we are helpless sinners enemies of God the reason the father has to draw us is because we're totally incapable unable to do it ourselves we can do nothing to save ourselves we make no contribution whatsoever to our salvation in the initiation of our salvation in the origination of our salvation God does all the work. We're helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. The reason Jesus said to come into the world is we cannot save ourselves. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ through Jesus Christ to himself. I'm always saying this to tell you our salvation is not about us. It is about God. He gets all the glory. He wants to show off the surpassing riches of his grace. He wants to make us trophies of his grace. These people who did not deserve it, I saved, I rescued. It was nothing that they did. It was not by their works of righteousness that they did. Even the faith they had is a faith that I imparted to them, that I granted to them. I originated it all. You say, Rod, you keep saying, I'm a gift to God the Son. God has made me a gift. As a Christian, I'm a gift to the Son. Well, listen, I don't feel like I should be a gift to the Son. That's kind of a bummer gift, if you, think, if you think about it, God, giving me as a gift to the Son. That's like getting socks for Christmas. That's a bad gift. That's what you think. That's what you think. No, it doesn't matter. It's not like Jesus gets one of these love gifts and he opens the box and says, oh great, another sinner. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Not another one, you know. It's No. He embraces us. He delights in us. John 6, 39, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Every gift that's given to God, to Christ from God the Father, he will raise up on the last day. You are going to be raised up on the last day because you were a gift to the Son by the Father. He's repeating something very similar to this. Look down in verse 65 as he ends the sermon. And he was saying, verse, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. You see that? You read in the book of Ezekiel, and that kind of goes with verse 45, John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets that they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, notice, comes to me. Speaking of where this all originates from, speaking the language of, very similar language to Ezekiel 36, I will put a new heart in them. I will create a, 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 a new spirit within them. I will give them a heart of flesh. I will take away their heart of stone. I will make them willing. That's a work of God. There's no human pronouns in that whole thing. It's all God. I, God, will do those things in their heart. This this is another way of saying verse 44. They shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from me. He's the one that creates the hunger. He's the one that creates the desire. He's the one that does that original work in me that brings me and makes me and causes me to repent and desire salvation. It's God. It's not a humanly generated action and, and this is not a universal drawing this is not everybody in the human race this is only those in whose heart he works everybody Jesus is talking to in this sermon he's basically telling them you don't believe the reason you don't believe is because you have not been drawn by the father the reason you don't believe is because you're not a gift to me from the father I don't know where else you go with this in this sermon. It's all over it. It's very difficult words. Submit to the sovereignty of God is the message to them. That's an offensive message. If you are coming, it's because you're the Father. If you're not coming, it's because the Father is not drawing you. He must draw you. He must lead the horse to water. Look up in verse 28 and 29, back up in John 6, 28 and 29. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You want to work the works of God? That's cute. That's really cute. But this is the work that God does. That you believe. You see that? Some people think when you read that, it's telling you what you must do. No, this is telling you what the work of God is. This is the work of God that you believe. That's His work. It's His work. The work that God performs in you so that you believe in Jesus. Because works don't save us. Works don't save us. There is no work that you can do, it's the work of God that brings about belief in you. He performs in you so that you believe in the Son of God. Go back to John six forty six. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Just, just stating that nobody has seen him but me, the Son, the one who is from God, and the only access to God is through the one who is from God. That's all he is saying in that verse. I have the authority to get you to God. And then it's interesting. We switch now back to human responsibility. I've just shared with you in 44 and 45, divine sovereignty And now we flip right back into the context of my faith and your faith. Human responsibility. Notice in verse 47 truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. The marker that tells me I am drawn by the Father, the marker that tells me that I'm a gift to the Son, is that I believe. I must believe. I have a responsibility to believe. And I will be held culpable for my unbelief. I don't get it. So don't ask me to explain that. I'm just telling you what the sermon says. I'm just telling you that every time you see divine sovereignty, you see human responsibility. And many times they run side by side They run side by side and they reconcile a seeming contradiction in the mind of the eternal God. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. We, We cannot work the works of God. That's the work that he does. He gives us the Son. He teaches us in his word. We respond by his drawing. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, verse 48, 49 say. And then you know what he does? He tells us what it means to believe. He changes the imagery here from believe and behold the Son of God and come to the Son of God. He changes it to eating and drinking the Son of God. Eating and drinking. This is teaching us what he means by believing in the Son of God. Verse 50, he says, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He will have eternal life. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eat is the same as embracing the bread, believing Go look at John 640. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. You see that? He's just substituted, eat and drink, in these verses that will follow. Drink hasn't shown up yet. But the point is, it's now eat. This is telling you what he means by believe, by come, by behold. Notice in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Believe in verse 50 and 51 and following is been replaced by eating and drinking. That's all this means. Eating and drinking is now telling you what it means to believe. Believe. Verse forty-seven of John six: Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who, excuse me, I'm, I just jumped back. I didn't mean to do that. Verse fifty-two. Fifty-two. Are you with me? Have I totally confused you? Verse fifty-two. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" I don't think they're thinking he's literally talking about cannibalism, but they're certainly trying to figure out what does he mean by this figurative language. Some people, unbelievers, throughout church history have interpreted it to mean cannibalism, that you and I gather in a room and are cannibals. and We eat and drink flesh and blood, literal flesh and blood. Verse 53, and the language gets stronger because now he adds, drink his blood. Notice, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So now blood's added. And this is what it means to believe and behold and come to the Son of God. And so here's, here's, here's what you would say to this. Just like you would eat a piece of bread literal bread it would go into your stomach break down and sustain your body it would assimilate in your body and you're strengthened by it it becomes one with you that is what is going on here folks it's it's not just acquiescing to some facts about Jesus it's not just being an admirer of Jesus. It's not just being taken back by how great a teacher Jesus is. It's none of that. It is I am becoming one with Jesus when I believe. I am taking him all in. This is an internal work in me. It's not some superficial surfacey belief. It's the closest possible relationship I can have with anything is if I eat it. It becomes part of me. This is speaking in a spiritual sense, through the Spirit. I become one with Christ. I become united to Christ. You, You and I are not just followers of a man named Jesus. We're not just followers of a man named Jesus. We are in Christ. Paul's language. We have been placed into Christ. He is in us. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He lives in me. See, it's superficial. Oh yeah, I believe. Like the John 2 people who said they were believing. But Jesus was not entrusting Himself to them because He knew what was in their heart. They were just there for the miracles. They were just there for the works of God. They were not there for God. They love the works, but when Jesus starts talking, we're going to see they don't like His words. A lot of people want Jesus without Jesus. They want Jesus' works, but they don't want Jesus. He says... In verse 57, maybe? 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. The manna, you know, you ate the manna, you did things with the manna for all those years. He says, but the manna, you you eventually would die, but this bread you will never die. Me, the living bread, the true bread. All of that was just a, a foreshadowing of a type of of me. Christ. Listen, this text is not about communion. This is not, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. This is not about communion. This is not about transubstantiation. This is not about the mass. This is not about making the body, the, 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 the wafer and the grape juice into the literal blood and body of Christ. That is not that at all. This has nothing to do with communion. I've, I said something about this last week. Communion is not established until the upper room. That has not happened yet. These people would not even understand communion. But secondly, secondly, it would say, if you make this a communion passage, you would be saying you have to take communion to be saved. The wording of this would require that. If you say, this is speaking of the Lord's table. It's not anything to do with that nothing is required of me for salvation. I don't perform any work to be worthy of salvation. Communion does not save me. He's saying that I have everything, I, I am everything you need for eternal life. That's what he is saying. You don't need anything else. I, you need to find your satisfaction and your sustenance and your meaning in life from me. Give up all your autonomy. Give up all your autonomy, all your self-sufficiency, and come to Christ. He must be more valuable to you than anything else. The world may be going one direction, and you don't care. You say, I don't care if the world's offended. I don't care. I don't care if my family's offended. I don't care. He's more valuable to me than the world thinks, what my family thinks. He's more valuable to me even than what I think at times. I need to get over myself sometimes because He is more important than my feelings and my autonomy. But He is calling for a strong commitment here. He is not calling you just to follow me around and watch me perform. He's not saying just follow me around and experience good feelings. He's not saying any of that. He is saying, I want all of you. That's what it means to believe in me. That's what it means to behold me. That's what it means to come to me. That's what it means when he said to the disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Be willing to die for me. Take up your cross. Verse 59 just reminds us that he said these in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then in closing, I'm going to actually finish this chapter today you got three responses here at the very end. This should not take me very long. Three responses here at the very end, beginning in verse 60. you got three different responses. Notice in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And understand, disciple just simply means a learner. Disciple simply means a fo- one who follows Jesus. It doesn't mean the 12 here, okay? The 12 were certainly disciples. They were also apostles. Uh, any, you can be a disciple and not be a believer if you follow Jesus, as we're going to see here in just a minute. But therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscience that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Does this offend you? Well, let me apologize for what I just said. does not say that. He doesn't say that. And neither should you. Don't try to, when we try to soften the words, you know what you do? All you do is you're just Uh, all you do is you're just curing the concrete of their heart even more. The word is a hammer. It breaks up the concrete. We need to preach God's word no matter how hard it sounds or how difficult it is. That's what breaks up the hard human heart. If you just do soft words, just cure the concrete. Let the concrete get harder and harder. You're okay. There's no consequences for your sin. You can practice that and still be a Christian. You You can do all of that. Jesus apologizes for nothing. These people are saying how difficult this is. Verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending ascending to where he was before? What are you going to do on the day when you see me going back into heaven when that happens? When right now I'm in a non-glorified, veiled state in front of you. What happens when the veil is torn off and you see me in all my glory? Where are you going to stand then? Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. It is the spirit who gives life. That's what he's saying. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. There you go, another divine sovereignty verse. Stuck in here with all these human responsibility verses. Tell you what, while I'm at this point, just follow with me. Verse 35, human responsibility verse. Who believes in me will never thirst. Divine, verse 37, a divine sovereignty verse, all the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39, divine sovereignty verse, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, that's a divine sovereignty verse. Verse 40, a human responsibility verse, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, human responsibility. Look at verse 44, divine sovereignty verse, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, divine sovereignty verse. Those who come are those who have been learned from the Father and taught by the Father. Verse 47, a human responsibility verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, he believes has eternal life. Human responsibility verse. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 54, he who eats my bread and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's a human responsibility verse. Verse 56, human responsibility Verse 57, human responsibility. Verse 58, human responsibility. Verse 64, human responsibility. And verse 65, divine sovereignty. Two tracks running together in the very same sermon. These people thought it was just way too much. Verse 66 says, as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him. Anymore. They desert him. They had come for a free lunch. We did not come for this. We weren't expecting this. This got a little too personal. We want to, uh, we came to to uh, not talk about being totally dependent on you. We didn't come here to give up our autonomy. We didn't come here to talk about truth and eternal life. We just just fix our temporary problem. That's what I want you to do. That is what I want you to do. And this is common today. People come to church and they say, "All that preacher talked about was the need to repent and believe in the gospel. All that preacher talked about was god 's sovereignty and salvation. All that pe- preacher talked about was the sovereignty of God and how He works in our lives to bring us to Christ. That 's all he wanted to talk about. I have no idea how that fixes my marriage or how that helps me with my kids. that 's what I came to hear. And well, I'll just go somewhere else and I 'll find those how-to sermons that never dig up anything in my sinful heart that are having a tremendous effect on how I relate in my marriage and how I relate in my raising of my children. Because nobody wants to get to the heart of the problem. Let me just deal with the superficial issues where I'm comfortable. When I'm the problem and you're the problem, the sin is in me. And it's a message of redemption. It's not a message of band-aids all over me to just fix superficial wounds. So, the second response we see in verse 67 through 71, Jesus turns to the 12. You do not want to go away also, do you? So so why are you following me? He doesn't say run out and, and get those people. He doesn't say that. Go go out and get those people and try to explain me to them a little better than I did. Go soften the message a little bit and, and make it more palatable. Help me do that. He doesn't say that. He just says, are you here? Kind of like the words he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the son of the living God. Peter, God told you that. God told you that, Peter. You didn't come up with that by yourself. Here, Peter speaks again. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. (laughs) We have nowhere else to go. (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. Listen, uh, no other religion has this message. There's nobody out there that says the things you say, does the things you do. God, we've burned bridges for you. We, there's no going back. We, where would we go back to? You see, these are the words of a true disciple. The words of a true disciple. A true disciple is one who knows that when times get tough, when things get difficult, the temptation is to flee. He says, No, where, where am I going to go? This is all there is. This is all I've got. This is all that matters. It's not easy. It's hard. I don't even understand all these doctrines that this preacher's talking about this morning, but yet I'm being held in this by something bigger than me. The true believer perseveres. You know why the true believer perseveres? Because the true believer is being preserved by Christ. I, I, none of them... All that the Father gives me, John 10 says, another subject for another day. But in John 10, all the Father that gives to me, I will not lose any of them. If you are truly a gift from the Father, you will never flee, you will never run, and you will never lose your salvation. So those are words of a true, a true disciple. And then finally, the, the pretender. Oh, well, verse 69 first. For we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you want to go too? No, we don't want to go. You're the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to go. There's only one God and you're it and we're not going anywhere. And then the third response is the pretender or deceiver. Jesus, verse 70, answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, most pretenders, when they hear a sermon like John chapter 6, they're out of there. This is not the place for me. They would leave. But Judas is like many who just choose to, to hang around and be around Christians, pretending, just pretending to go along. Never, ever beholding or drinking We're eating the bread. Judas kept playing along, playing the long game, saying maybe eventually I can profit from this somehow. Maybe at some point this will become, continue to become, you know, right now I'm with a guy that does miracles. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Makes me pretty popular. It sets me up maybe for the future in some way. Who knows what his motives, all his motives were. But pretenders are like that. They like the things that are done and the things that are done through Christians, but they don't like the Jesus. They don't like the Jesus who is the bread that has come down from heaven. He was the treasurer, you know, among the disciples, and we're told he would skim money. He loved money. He loved money more than he loved Christ. That's why he eventually will betray him. So hey, question. Question on this Christmas Eve. Question about that baby who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago and grew up and delivered a sermon like this. How are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to desert and say, I've had enough. I've had enough of this church and you're teaching the Bible too much. I don't want to hear it. I've actually had people tell me that. You talked about the Bible way too much at your church. I said, well, we could show a movie, I guess. And I guess we can somehow relate the Bible to a movie and show that on Sunday mornings. No. Would you desert him? Would you desert him for temporal things? Or would you just be a deceiver and act like you Act like like, a tear among the wheat. I would pray you would not. Or are you a true disciple? That no matter what comes, no matter what comes, He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. He is the one who came down from God, and He alone has the words of eternal life. Where can we go? No matter what comes, no matter what comes. God, that is the price we will pay because you are God, the eternal God. Father, thank you for our time this morning. What a sermon. What a sermon. I would hope to thank God if I was standing there that day or any of us were standing that day, we wouldn't have deserted, but God, we know our flesh. And we know, God, if you're not doing a work in us, if you had not done a work in us, we would not be here because, God, we were going our own way, lost in darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins. God, you had to initiate this work. You had to do it. And the Bible says you started the process way back before time began and put our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before time began. And then one day, you eventually, in our, one day you gave us as a gift to the Son when we were converted. We don't know why you did that, but we're so grateful that you did. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.